This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I am excited for this episode. We have a veteran of the Australian finance industry, someone who came recommended uh, to us by another expert Mm. that we interviewed. Uh, So I'm excited to pick his brains and see what we can learn. Likewise, love a good reco, and it is our pleasure to welcome Wayne Jones to the studio. Wayne, welcome. Good morning, guys. Pleasure to be here. So Wayne is the co-founder of Gains Capital Management and portfolio manager for the Gains Focused Value Fund. Since the inception of the fund in 2002, Gains has returned 12% per annum compared to 9% for the ASX 300 accumulation index. So as uh, Ren said, been in markets for a while, plenty of experience for us to uh, tap into and unpack. So let's get going. Yeah, Wayne, 20 years of outperformance. You love to see that. And uh, we look forward to delving into it. But we want to take you back to the start uh, for the start of this interview to the very start of your investing journey. Can you tell us the story of your first investment? Sure. Um, Well, I was studying accounting and I'm an accountant by background and um, always loved the stock market. And uh, so my first, when I used to go to uni, um, there was an investment newsletter there called Ridges um, newsletter, as in Ridges Hotel. And um, and so I used to go up there and read that newsletter in the in the library um, every time I was at the uni. And they had a little stock tip in uh, there for a company called Pacific Tires. So this is the early 80s, uh, a company called Pacific Tires, and they said, we think this might be a takeover candidate. And um, sure enough, I bought the stock, and sure enough, a month or two later, there was a takeover bid by uh, Dunlop, and so that became part of Dunlop Olympic. And, um, and so I made money. I thought, how easy is this? I was hooked. <laughs> And um, it was all downhill from there for about the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we love to start uh, by understanding the investment philosophy that our guests um, take and then and then go from there. So how would you ex- describe your investment philosophy? Um, well, it's nothing controversial. I'm, I'm looking for good quality companies which we can hold for the long term. So that, there's nothing controversial in that whatsoever. When I started this uh, 20 years ago, I was very hung up on valuation and so I'd sit there and do spreadsheets and work out you know, what was a good price to pay and I'd sell things when things got up to that price. 
these days it's evolved a lot more um, in recent years where I'm still looking for good quality companies. I still want to hold them for the long term. ARB and uh, Reese are probably the first two companies I put in the fund and I still own them 20 years later. But in recent years, I'm not quite so hung up on valuation. I let things run. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about this in the investment process, but um, I let things run a lot more as they go. And I don't hold as much cash as I used to. So when I first started, I'd always have quite a bit of cash because I'd always be thinking, oh, I need some cash for opportunities. These days, I tend to be very fully invested, only a couple of percent of cash. And if I see something I want to buy, then I, it becomes a two process. Then I've got to, it's something I want to buy. It means I've got to have something I need to sell. And so my next investment opportunity has to be better than the worst idea in my portfolio. That's my opportunity cost now. So the cash has been waiting on my portfolio. My investment returns have always been better than the cash return. So the cash has been like a wait. So now I look at it that my opportunity cost is the worst idea in my portfolio at the moment. On that idea of, you know, there's value in the, in the name of your fund, um, but the, the concept of value investing... Well, it, it obviously had a difficult 10 years as growth investing and, you know, those big American tech names really just overtook the market. Do you, do you still consider yourself a value investor? Oh, look, there's many um, nuances in that name. Now, when, when we started 20 years ago, uh, I was very hung up on valuation, so hence value was in the name of the fund. I wasn't just sitting there buying. You've got to remember this was just after the internet boom. I wasn't buying story stocks. I was buying businesses which I could value, look at their cash flows and that sort of thing. So value was in the name then because that's how I looked at the world. These days I'd probably, I'd just call it an investment fund rather than anything else because I'm, I'm not quite so hung up on that valuation anymore. Yeah, fair enough. I think a lot of new investors, you know, you, you start by reading Intelligent Investor and the Buffett Letters and I, I certainly went through this and I certainly consider myself a value investor early days looking for net nets and, and all of that. Um, but I think, you know, the more we do this podcast and the more we speak to experts, you, you really learn that those labels aren't as black and white as it feels and it, it's a lot more interchangeable. Very much so. But Wayne, as well as the the changing of the, I guess, you know, the, the philosophy over the 20 years. One other thing that's changed is the assets under management. And it's a pretty incredible story. In 2002, you started with less than $100,000 assets under management. Today, you manage $65 million. Um, tell us about that, that growth story and, you know, what, what you've learned over the time. Um, well, the 100000 really was just the initial seed capital that we put in was just, you know, you know, myself and and uh, and then just the investors have just grown over that time and uh, we had some financial plans uh, seeders with a fund as well so yeah so that's just how it's gone uh, it's just been a, a gradual process I mean the GFC was fairly ugly which we'll you know, probably talk about um, but uh, yeah it's just been a, a, a gradual compounding over 20 years it wasn't a get rich quick sort of a thing by any stretch. So Wayne, we're, we're obviously in a, a part of the market cycle at the moment that uh, a lot of the equity mates community might not have ever experienced before, or it might be only the second time that we're experiencing a significant downturn. Um, you've been managing gains through 2008, 2020, and, and now 2022. What, what advice would you have for those that are experiencing this for the first time when it comes to actually investing through downturns? Um, you know, is there any tips around portfolio construction rules that help you allow to capital, capitalize on moments like this? What is your process when you're experiencing a downturn? Um, the first thing you say to yourself is this too shall pass. <laughs> um, if you 
long enough, um, this too will, will pass. Um, I would say to you, the way I sort of think about it is really understand the businesses that you own and be, if you're right about the business and you can look at the business will get through these periods, you don't have to worry about the market so much. It's If you're right about the business, you know, they're well-funded, they're not you know, um, loss-making, they don't need to raise capital, uh, that's what's going to get you through these periods. So that, And if you don't need to transact, just don't look at the market. I mean, if you're not buying or selling that day and you own the business, I mean, if you own shares in Woolworths, you can see people walking in and out of the supermarket. I don't need to go and look at the share price and tell me that business is going okay. So looking at the share market every day is just going to give you a whole bunch of anxiety you don't need, especially if there's a lot of red there. So um, if if I look back at the GFC, uh, and I actually think what we're going through at the moment is pretty mild compared to the GFC or even um, COVID, uh, there was a period there in the GFC between January 2007 and March 2009 before we got the bounce. That 20-month period, I had 15 down months out of 20. Um, you know, every single month it was just grinding down. And it was down, the fund was down 50% from top to bottom. Um, some of those months were down double digit. So, And it wasn't as if we couldn't predict that. In fact, there was lots of people saying, look, this American housing market, it's going to collapse. This is not going to be good news. What I think most people did was they, and me included, just under-anticipated how bad this was going to be. So, But, you know, I had good businesses. I don't, didn't have any businesses that went broke. I had ARB and Flight Centre were my two biggest holdings through that period. You know, they, they came out the other side. So this too shall pass. Um, the other side, and especially if you've got a lot of years in front of you, you know, your target market's, you know, probably got 30, 40 years in front of it. What's happening in the next six months is really not going to be important in the scheme of things. But as long as you understand the businesses you own and you understand how they operate and that they can get through these periods, that's more important than the market itself. I mean, if we look at COVID, I mean, that came, that fell 25% in two months. That was a very short fall. But when I looked at that and I thought, well, I didn't waste time trying to work out, well, how many people are going to die? What's I didn't even understand what the lockdowns, I you know, grossly underestimated what the lockdowns would do. But the first thing I did was I looked through my portfolio and thought, okay, well, can these guys all get through it? And most of the companies I own don't have debt. So that was a non-issue. So I thought, well, if that's the case, this will get over, you know, we'll pass through this pretty quickly. I was buying with my ears pinned back and I wrote to my unit holders in March 2020 saying, this is the best opportunity we've had for 10 years and likely to have for another 10 years. I've got everything in here like this. And I was buying Levisa at $2.50 because you could just see people panicking on the screens where people were just coming in on the open and just absolutely, you know, pounding on price. And you could see that these were not informed sellers. These were people who were just panicking and wanted to get out of the market. So you just don't want to be a panicked or a forced seller. You just want to have businesses will be around and you just stick with them and, as I say, we'll forget about all about it. In five years' time, we won't even remember this now, you know, or we won't be talking about it. Mm-hmm. Like, you'll be talking about something in five years' time. Yeah, this too shall pass. Love that. <laughs> I, I guess the, the, you, you said earlier that the, the cash weighting was a drag on your portfolio compared to your investment returns. And so over time, you had less and less of a cash weighting. And that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. in, you know, 2009 to 2019 where um, – you know, life was good. <laughs> um, but in in a market like this, um, where a lot of stocks, the majority of stocks are down, that cash weighting 
sometimes outperforms, but also there's an opportunity there to deploy cash. How are you thinking now about uh, the reducing that cash weighting? And I guess, you know, you said in 2020, you were buying hand over fist. Did you have to sell opportunities? Uh, you had to sell companies that were down to then free up that cash to, to buy? Yes, I, I sold little bits and pieces here and there. But, you know, I, had, I was fortunate. I had some unit holders, you know, putting money in. They could see it as well. And um, I was looking around for every dollar I can get my hands on to stick in the fund. So it was just one of the I, – I said at least a joke at the time. I said, I'm looking for 20 cent pieces down the back of the lounge now. I'm just sort of trying <laughs> to find <laughs> – and, um, you know, to put in the funds. So, yeah, so the cash waiting, I, I'm not trying to predict when the market will turn because invariably I'll be wrong. I had no value to the equation there. My ability is to find businesses with, that will grow over the next decade or more. Mm. Um, my ability is not in picking. People like Stanley Druckermile that might be able to pick markets, I can't and I don't pretend to. Mm. No, if I did, I'd, just, I'd have to admit I was lucky. Well, well, Wayne, you'd be um, you'd be interested to know that uh, Alec sold his car to try and free up some liquidity to get into the market. So (laughs) (laughs) I must say, he didn't get a lot for it, though. So I empathise with you. I I don't think there's screaming buyers in this current market, but I'm finding things that I think yes, I think you'll do well from here if you're buying certain companies. you'd, You'd you'll do okay from here. Mm. Well, we can't wait to unpack some of your top holdings and some of your uh, opportunities a little bit later on, but we want to turn to your investment process because it's all well and good to know where you are in a market cycle and know that you have an opportunity to take advantage and and have some cash on the side or potentially not as much cash as you would like, but looking to invest, then it comes down to actually finding those investments. So what is your process to discover potential opportunities? Um, so, oh, look, I'm probably a little bit different to most. Of my, my process is I'm actually trying to screen things out rather than screen things in. So I don't tend to run screens on the market at all because the things I'm looking for don't screen well, like management quality, capital allocation skills, they don't screen. In, you know, they're not in a spreadsheet. So I'm looking for um, businesses that can just grow over the next decade or, or more um, and, and can get high returns on incremental capital. So... What I tend to do, and I only probably put one new idea in the fund each year, so I don't sit there. I'm not coming up with lots of ideas and going, oh, what am I going to buy now? It might literally be I put two new companies in the fund this year, which is Whitehaven and New Hope. Last year was one company, which is PSC Insurance. I'm a very low-activity kind of a guy, so um, so I'm just doing a lot of reading. I read annual reports. I hope on, one of the things I have changed in the recent years is I use YouTube a lot. I'm, I'll mm. you know, search for CEOs and you know give, watch them giving presentations at conferences and things like that just to get a bit of a feel for the person because when they're doing ASX presentation earnings announcements, they're very scripted in what they've got to say there because that's what they're giving the ASX. Whereas you can find them talking at conferences and they'll go off script and they'll talk about their business and they'll talk about things that they might not talk about in front of analysts. Um, so I use YouTube. Um, I'm just reading. I listen to lots of podcasts these days. So to give you an example, a few weeks ago, I listened to a four-hour podcast about a business called Transdime, which is a business in the States, not because I want to buy Transdime, but because I can look at that business model and think, okay, well, is there a business like that in Australia where I can see how that model might work? So um, so I'm using podcasts, just read a lot. It's very eclectic and it's more a process of screening things out. It's like a job interview where you've advertised for a, you know, someone to come and work for you. 
you're not sitting there trying to find out of the hundred resumes you've got, you're not trying to find all of them. You're just trying to get rid of the the 98 or 99 that you don't want mm. to, to interview. Was the four-hour podcast on Transdime, was that business breakdowns? No. Oh, it's okay. called 50X, which is... Um, Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. But I listen to Business Breakdowns as well. Business yeah. Breakdowns would be one of my favourite podcasts. Yeah. Mm, great yeah. podcast. A new podcast called 50X. Okay. And it was four one-hour shows and you had the founder on there. Wow. Tripping. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I love how much information there is out there and listening to you talk about your research process, when Bryce and I quit our day jobs to do Equity Mates full-time, that was my vision of what we would be doing just listening to podcasts yeah. and researching companies and we haven't quite got there. We decided to throw a massive festival instead, but hopefully we can, we can get <laughs> back to that because it just, it sounds like really just intellectually stimulating, just being able to learn and then being able to find yeah. ways to monetize that learning. You, you mentioned that some of these companies are you've held in the fund since day one or, you know, you've held for more more than a decade. And I, I think that's really the North Star for a lot of people in our audience, finding those long-term compounders that can just grow. And as you mm-hmm. said, they're not – you can't find them on a screen. You can't, you can't screen for, you know, sustainable competitive advantage. You, you can't screen for uh, ability to, to reinvest you know, earnings over time. Um, so I guess the question is then like, what are the hallmarks of those companies and, and how do you actually go about identifying them in your companies? Um, you said you screen them out, but for that, that one a year that you, you, uh, for a company that you put in, how do you actually go about researching it and giving it that tick against your investing checklist? So what I'll do, I'll, I'll read the annual reports, yeah, and I'll read a whole arc of annual reports so that I get a bit of a feel for, okay, well, they said this this year, and I'll build a, a financial model of the KPIs that I'm looking for, you know, the, the indicators I'm looking for, and I might make some notes there where you said, okay, well, in 2012 they made this acquisition. How did that work through the P&L? Um, in 2015 they said they were going to do this. How does that sort of work through? And I've just got the whole bunch of indicators. I'm just building this financial model so I can look at the history of the business, and it's not predicting it's just looking at the history of the business and so you're looking at one of the biggest things i look for is profit margins um so if you look at something like levisa which is in the fund 80 percent gross profit margins now if you can buy something for a dollar and sell it for five dollars to someone you're doing more than just selling a product you're selling something that people are happy to pay for mm. um you look at pwr 30 percent profit margins so that's the sort of thing you know profit margins are one thing one of the things that um, the guy in Transdime said, they said, we, he, he said, I, I, I want to buy a quality business. And the guy said, well, what to you is a quality business? And he said, well, it's a business where they have some intellectual property and they're a small thing going into a big thing. Now, that couldn't describe PWR better because PWR makes cooling systems for Formula One cars. It's only a very small spend in the overall spend of a Formula One car, but it's mission critical. So... A Formula One car, if the radiator stops, you know, if the cooling system breaks down, the car will stop. So it's mission critical. They can charge it. They've got pricing power because they've got intellectual property and it's a small thing going into a big thing. So that's that's one of the things I'm looking for. So I'm also looking for businesses where they're just trying to reduce customer friction. So if you look at Domino's Pizza, everything they've done for the last 10 years through their apps and their intellectual, their, the um, artificial intelligence is all about speeding up the process for someone when they buy a pizza. Um, so that's, 
if if you can see where they're just so focused on the customer that they're trying to reduce that friction for the customer, they're customer focused, then that's that will show up in the numbers. So profit margin, return on equity, return on incremental capital, and then it's a case of me saying, well, okay, I've done this for say ten years. What do I think? You know, can they do this for another ten years? And what? But, yeah, that, that's how I sort of think about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get away from just the story stocks where you've got a CEO coming to the market promising that he's going to, you know, take over the world when he hasn't even sort of got off, you know, ground zero yet. So I'm looking at guys who've done what they said they're going to do and I'm pretty confident they'll keep doing what they've done in the past. Mm. Well, I'm interested to unpack some of the holdings and you've, you've mentioned PWR holdings there and, and Whitehaven and Lavissa. And Lavissa is a stock actually that over the last few weeks, I reckon, is, I've heard three or four people talk about. So mm-hmm. um, looking forward to hearing your thoughts more on that. But let's start with PWR holdings. It's your number one holding in the portfolio. You did just briefly mention what it does. Yep. Maybe if you can just expand on it a little bit more. But also, uh, if you could talk to the bear case, like what would it take for the thesis to change and for it to no longer be part of the portfolio? PWR listed about 2016, I want to say. So I've pretty much owned it since the day it listed because I could see this was a great business. And I have to sort of say, PWR, I've been able to hold that and buy it, buy it in 2016, hold it for six years because I owned ARB for 15 years prior to that, because it's sort of a bit similar in the way it works. It was a it was a business that had some intellectual property and it was mission critical in something that was bigger. So ARB is a mission critical suspension system in a, in a forward drive. So Keith Wheel is the founder of the business. He started 20-odd years ago with his son, Paul, and so PWR is actually Paul Wheel Racing. That's how it became PWR, but Paul's not involved in the business anymore. Um, Matthew... Uh, Bryson, who's the chief engineer there and also a large shareholder, um, they were at a auto show in Germany and they said, look, we'd like to get into Formula One. And at that time, there was a competitor called Marsden and they had a uh, uh, their solution was they would make the, the cooling system for a Formula One car and they'd say, here's the radiator, you've got fitted in your car. Keith turned that around and said, you show me where you want it to go and I'll build the radiator for you and solve your problem. So Red Bull, so McLaren was the first team, but then Red Bull said, look, can you go and make this radiator? And I can't remember the numbers, but if you can reduce the weight of a car, it's worth X amount of seconds per lap. So Red Bull said, can you reduce the weight of this radiator by X amount? And that should help us. And uh, anyway, they, they did that and some. And then Red Bull obviously won the championship. And, of course, it was off to the races because then all the other teams started to want to get into PWR. And um, if you look at the factory when you're down there, it's just an amazing work set up how they got it down there. Like the guys doing F1 have got their own Formula One um, booths and you can see pictures of the racing cars and the teams there. So the guys, and you sort of work your way up the line. Um, so Formula One's obviously the pinnacle of it. They do every Formula One team on the grid is theirs, um, but they also do Rallycross. Rallycross is a great customer because they just smash their vehicles up all the time. <laughs> so that's what you want. Um, Formula E, um, they're, they're doing that. Um, I think 22 of the 25 cars at Le Mans use PWR in their cooling systems. And when you say cooling systems too, it's more than just a radiator. They've got to cool. The more electronics you put on a car, the more you've got to cool that as well. So I think there's something like 14 cooling systems on a Formula One car now and just getting more. So that's the sort of thing that they do. And I guess the smarts there is that they've got engineers that can design these things but then they've got the smarts to be able to turn that into a physical product which you can put into a car. There's probably engineers who can design it, 
but they've got the smarts to be able to put that, in the, that into a physical product. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful business. And when Marsden, they took over all the Marsden business and, um, and Marsden couldn't sell their business because they, all, they use this technology in um, aerospace. So it was only natural that you could make, join the dots that, okay, well, PWR will now go into aerospace because they've got the technology to do that. And sure enough, that's where we're at now. So Keith came out and said um, in the last six months that in the next few years, probably next three years, the aerospace part of the business will be bigger than the motorsports part of the business. So they just cracked $100 million in revenue for the first time this year. Um, so it's growing very nicely, um, very profitable, high returns on equity. Keith is a founder and he's a real go-getter founder. Um, and Matthew Zare is the, um, the chief technology sort of guy. He's just a very smart guy who can design these things. So it just ticks all the boxes for me in terms of um, what they're doing. Um, and I think this aerospace will be, you know, lots of opportunities down the track for that. Mm. And they also do um, high-performance cars. So um, if Mercedes is doing like a $400,000 know, high-performance high road car, it will have PWI cooling system in it. I'm looking at the, share, the the price chart this year and between May and June, it fell forty a bit over 40%. Mm. And then since then, it's rebounded and it's sort of back to where it was. <laughs> what happened in late May, early June? <laughs> Um, I think it was just a case of it was late to the party and falling. Like everything else in my portfolio had fallen 40% <laughs> between January and May and it, it didn't held up and I thought, oh, well, that's yeah, nice to know. But then it just it fell as well. So I think that was just market forces. So there's, there's no news around it and I said that in the June update. There's, there's no news around this except that you know, it was probably a bit on the expensive side and people thought, well, I've made money on this, I'll sell this. And now they're back in. <laughs> and, you know, they, they came out with a really good result and not only a good result but you can see now that this aerospace and the, the new technology stuff is really starting to take off. Uh, we, we've had uh, experts talk about PWR on the show before. I believe Emma Fisher from Airly um, also uh, chatted to us about it. Yep. It sounds it's it's such a fascinating company, and I, I love finding these companies just operating in niches that I, I never would have known about if I wasn't doing this podcast. It, it's a really reminder of how lucky we are. But I think about who they're supplying to. You know the the best Formula One teams in the world with teams of hundreds of engineers designing their cars, and I I often think like, what's to stop them doing it themselves or you know what's to stop other uh companies around the world seeing what pwr are doing and you know you explained how they uh they sort of flipped the, the the design process on its head um and you know were able to work with these car makers a lot better what's to stop other competitors copying that business model or you know the formula one teams and with these big engineering budgets doing it in-house um well i don't think they have the manufacturing process or the desire to go and do it. So the, those Formula One teams, and you've got to remember, cooling is only one part of the car. I'd understand that if you're talking about the motor or the tyres, where that's a much bigger part of, of the, the system. A cooling system is quite minor. It's mission critical, but it's quite minor in the actual budget of a Formula One uh, car. I could be wrong, but I think Ferrari spends like $300 million on their Formula One team per year. And I would I'm just guessing, but I would think that PWR probably gets 15 million of that, um, maybe not even that much. So it's a very, very small part. So, and that is the advantage that you, someone coming into that industry, um, there's just not enough business there for now that they've gone and got all that industry, all that business, 
there's not enough scale for someone to come in there and sort of say, oh, well, I want to get that business as well. And also you've got to convince them that they've got to change as well. You know, that's not easy if you're dealing with someone that you know, it's a mission-critical part of gear, mm. part of gear and car. Great business, great business. It is a great business. Probably the biggest risk actually for the business is if they change the Formula 1 rules to look more like NASCAR and they say, okay, we want all the cars to look exactly the same going around the track. And so, therefore, you just end up with the same gear inside. I mean, it'll be incredibly boring for the sport. And I don't think Liberty, the guy who owns Liberty Media, who owns Formula One, I don't think they would allow that. But that that would be the bare case for them that um, they just standardise. And that's only Formula One. So, Formula One's only one part of that business. But I think um, if they standardise the rules for cars in Formula One, that would probably be the biggest risk to the business at this point in time. But I don't see that happening for years. Well, Wayne, let's turn to your second largest holding and potentially the sixth because they're both in the same category and that is coal. So Whitehaven Coal, New Hope. Obviously, coal's been having a great run. We look back on the last 12 months and I have had no exposure to it or anything like that. But if you have, you've obviously done pretty well. So what's the the thesis here? These long-term plays, is this, um, why these two companies? So every now and then I find opportunistic things which I think there's very little downside here and I should be able to double my money regardless of how markets perform. Jeez. At the start of the year, my portfolio was looking expensive and I wrote to the union holders in December and I said, look, the share prices have got ahead of the value of the portfolio so we might be in for a bit of, I called it subdued returns. I wasn't expecting a 28% fall but I um, said, you know, we're probably going to have some subdued returns. It sort of came up on my radar that the coal price had popped up and I was just talking to a friend and you can work out the P&L of a coal company quite simply. Once you know the coal price and you know how much it costs to get out of the ground, you can work out the P&L or the cash flow of a business pretty quickly. And so I thought, hang on, these things are selling for like one times cash flow if this spot price stays where it is. And so that's, that's as simple as, and as complex as it was. I thought, okay, well, I'm buying something for one, maybe two times cash flow they were already making fairly uh, friendly noises to shareholders that, you know, you've had some lean years, we're going to give this money back to you, either through buybacks or dividends. And so I just looked at that and I thought, okay, this is a fairly safe place to put some money where I've got very little downside. And I thought, look, if this doubles over the next two years, that will be a good outcome. It's more than doubled in six months. So <laughs> it's, sort of, um, it's got a little bit quicker than I thought it was going to, but this is an opportunistic play. I if we're having this conversation in five years' time, I'll be incredibly surprised at Whitehaven's in the portfolio then. It, it served a purpose and it's serving a purpose at the moment, but it's not the sort of thing I would go and load the, the portfolio up on. So, Wayne, on the those coal companies, you know, you, you, you're mentioning it's opportunistic. would love to understand when you think about selling, uh, but before then, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So when before the break, we were talking about two of the major holdings in your portfolio, Whitehaven Coal and New, New Hope. Uh, and unlike some of the other holdings, which are, you know, these you know, decade, multi-decade long uh, time horizon investments. Uh, These coal investments have been a little bit more tactical. And so it's probably a good opportunity for for us to unpack your process around selling investments. So I guess let's start generally. When when do you know when to sell? What, What are you looking for? And then specifically about these coal investments, what are some of the indicators or factors that will tell you now's the time to get out? So generally... Um, I would like to think if I've got the business right, I never need to sell. Um, in days gone by, I would sell on valuation purposes. These days, I don't do that. Just because the share price has gone up is not a reason to sell. So I only ever sell um, if I want to buy something else and the thing I want to buy, I think, is a better opportunity or the, the business is broken the, I, or the business thesis is broken where they said they were going to do something that hasn't worked or I'm not happy with what you know, how the their capital allocation skills are going, or if I've just made a mistake about the competitive advantage of the business where I thought they had a competitive advantage and they just don't and, you know, the world has changed. So there, in general, that's what happens. And that tends, my portfolio turnover would be less than 10% per annum. So it's a very low turnover by most standards. Um, so I only pretty much sell when I make a mistake is, is the general, or I see a better opportunity. In terms of the coal stocks, I will either sell them if I see other things which I think, oh, I'd rather have my money in X, Y, Z rather than this, or if I think, okay, the risk-reward relationship isn't there anymore. So when I was buying this on, you know, one to two times cash flow, it was a very high reward to the risk you were taking. At $11 a share and probably about four times cash flow, the reward now is not as, as good as the risk that you're taking. So... That's, that's how I'm thinking about it. There's no time target. There's no price target. It's just how that risk-reward relationship goes and what my other opportunity set looks like. So, you know, some of the other stocks that I know very well and I'm very comfortable with, if they were to halve from here, well, I would sell Whitehaven in a heartbeat and buy um, something else that I prefer yeah, right. for 20 years. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's turn to the third stock in your portfolio, which is LaVisa, a discount jeweler i would say or cheaper jewelry so talk us through the company you mentioned there you love the margins that it has um as i said i've heard it you know brought up uh, multiple times this week so talk us through what the company is what is the thesis and why you love it so much Levisa is, as I say, it's a low-priced um, costume and jewellery business. So if you're looking for a piece of jewellery for your wife, you're probably not going to go to Levisa. But if you're an office girl and you need a pair of earrings for the races on Saturday, you might go in there and buy these earrings for $10 or $20 or for work or whatever. So they have an 80% gross profit margin um, and about 20% profit margin you know, operating once they pay their costs. 
They started off about 10 years ago. Um, Brett Blundy is the chairman and he's the largest shareholder in the business. And Brett Blundy is a retail genius. His shareholding in the business these days is worth about a billion dollars. So that's how successful it's been. They now have about 650 stores and 150 of those are in Australia. Australia is pretty well built out now, they've said. That's a mature market. But Australia's only 150 of the 650. They've gone off. America's the main market now. Where they've got about 115 stores over there. But they're also expanding into other markets. They've got a new CEO, um, a guy called Victor, who's a Spanish guy who used to work for Zara, Rintec, um, and also worked for Guess. And now he's been incentivized um, and heavily incentivized to roll this out and, and grow the business. It's got wonderful economics. So they, the stores are about 50 to 80 square metres. My guesstimate is a store turns over six to $800,000 a year. So the, the sales per square metre on this, these stores are really good. Um, very easy to roll this out. Costume jewellery, women the world over wear it. And it's a single line business. So I think there was a competitor in Australia um, not so long ago who went broke. And if you're going to be in the fashion industry, from my reading of it, if you're going to be in the fashion industry, you're either at the very bottom of the price market in the budget area or you're at the very high end. So you go, Louis Vuitton makes 80% gross profit margins and um, Zara and Levisa make 80% gross profit margins and then it's a race to the bottom as you go back in towards the middle. So you want to be at one end or the other and you want to stay in that end. There was a competitor that had um, discount or low-priced costume jewellery, but she was also doing handbags as well. Now, you would sort of think theoretically, oh, handbags, 80% gross profit margin, that should work. But it's a different business model because when you walk into a shop to buy a handbag, you're not buying that thing in five minutes. You're going to sit there and look at it. You've got to have space for it. You've got to train the staff differently. This costume jewellery is just... the People are buying this stuff every week or every two weeks. It's a repeat business. It's a single-line business, and it doesn't take much of a store footprint. So, and so this thing can grow for a long time to come. They really surprise us with the results in um, uh, for 2022. Profits are up over 100% on the year. I mean, it was extraordinary. Mm. And I can just see if I had to pick one stock in the portfolio which might surprise me over the 10 next 10 years, Levisa would be the one. Wow, love that. It's fascinating. It's yeah. it's a fascinating con company it's like um fast fashion for jewelry yeah really just get it cheap get it out the door change your lines constantly be have new things coming in and out what's its competitive advantage though like what's stopping ren and i going to alibaba not that we have any knowledge of jewelry but like getting cheap cheap jewelry and just setting up a small shop and pumping it out the door Because it's logistics behind it. You could do it. Yeah. And I'm sure you could do it for one store. I don't know if we could do it, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) It was a strange analogy that Bryce used. But you know what I mean? Like it's not – there's no innovation in product. There's no like you can – you can pick up that product pretty cheap from, from could, China. Couldn't that article uh, argument be made for most retail businesses? Yeah. I was going to say, you can make that argument for Zara too. You could, yeah. And you can make that argument for Walmart. And you can make that argument for Costco. Yeah. You could. These guys just keep it's, – it's the logistics and the culture behind that that you don't get. And, I, and again, they just reduce the friction. So when you walk into a LaVisa store – if you're buying a, a piece of costume jewellery, it's not behind counters. It's sitting on a rack. Mm. It's a very easy decision. And if I get it wrong, okay, I'll, I'll blow 10 bucks or $20. You're just reducing that friction and you, because they've got the scale there, you would think it shouldn't do as well as it does. 
but I can sort of see why it does do as well as it does. The risk would be if they became a multi-line. It, if they went and did the same thing as um, um, some of these other competitors did and thought, okay, well, we do costume drawing, we make really good margins on that, let's do something else that we can make good margins make on. Up. I think that's where they would go wrong and they would, you know, your sales per square metre would drop, your oil footprint would go up and that's that wouldn't be a disaster. Yeah, because I was I was thinking a little bit differently to Bryce. I wasn't thinking that he and I would go on Alibaba and start buying jewellery, but I was wondering like what is to stop the other fast fashion players, you know, the H&Ms and the Zaras from uh, really having it going head to head with La Visa. And I'm sure they do. I'm sure they have cheap jewellery at the checkout and stuff like that, but... The sales per square meter, like the, the fact that you can cram it into such a small store is something that a lot of those fashion retailers, like those clothes fashion retailers, I guess can't do. No, and it's, not their, it's not their focus. Look, I'm sure people do go into H&M and, and buy costume jewellery. I mean, you're not going to get 100% of the market. But if I'm walking through town or a shopping centre, I think, oh, I need a pair of earrings for the races on Saturday or for drinks on Friday night. Levis is just that one... Yeah, you know, it's going to be one of the names that goes through your head. And that's what Harvey Norman used to say. He said, I just, people are going to look, go and look at TVs anywhere. I just want to be one of the three names that people think of when they're looking to buy a TV. And I think Levis is in the same boat. Yes, you might be in H&M buying a dress and you think, oh, okay, there's some earrings on the counter, I'll buy them too. But if you're just thinking, oh, I want to get some earrings for a, an occasion, I don't want to spend a lot of money, you just want that to be the top of mind that, or you're one of the choices that they'll make when they're going when they're making that choice. Well, three blokes talking about buying jewellery, probably not the uh, no. the experts I in the field. I have bought jewellery from Lavissa. <laughs> have you? Yeah, costume. Okay. Super easy, super cheap. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and if you make the wrong decision, you're not going to get bent out of shape. They're also massive, massive in rural towns, massive in Wagga. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Let's talk about one other company quickly that you mentioned earlier uh, that isn't as big as these. I think it's the eighth biggest holding in your portfolio, but it's definitely one that is front of mind for a lot of people and that's Domino's Pizza. And when you were speaking about it earlier, you were speaking about how it's just so focused on cutting friction. And surprisingly enough, pizza has been one of the best growth stories on the Australian share market. Forget tech. Um, it's, It's all about pizza. But Domino's hasn't had a great year this year. It's down 42% year to date. What are your thoughts on Domino's at the moment? Um, I still like the business. And um, I think if you go back and look, if you look at Domino's 10 years ago, um, they did $200 million in turnover. They had 1,000 stores. Most of them were in Australia. If you look at Domino's today, and like they basically had just the Australian market and a bit of New Zealand, if you look at Domino's today, they're doing $2 billion in turnover. They've got nearly 3,500 stores. In, it's a global, or not a global business, but in multiple markets. Um, and a wonderful, wonderful management team. And they're just getting scale in some of these European countries like France and Germany. We, you just don't get scale where the television advertising really drops through and you can pick up customers. I just look at this as they've had one bad year. You just have to, That's part of being in business. The Japan... Um, there's two reasons, but for me, there was two main reasons why the profit fell this year. Japan came off sharply because when people were in lockdown, they couldn't go to restaurants. So they had to. They were buying takeaway pizza. They set the business up thinking that okay, well, even when the lockdowns come off, they'll keep buying pizza because that's what they did in rest, around the rest of the world. In Japan, they didn't. They started going back to restaurants. 
So, and they'd set up all the marketing spenders if they were going to keep getting those customers. They didn't come through, so the profits in Japan went down. The other thing they've done is they've taken over the area for Denmark and they lost $12 million in Denmark. Now, that's, that, will, that will build that business back up. So I'm not terribly worried about it on a year-to-year basis. I mean, they're growing in the right direction. They've got new territories now in Malaysia. Um, Japan will just keep growing. I mean, that, that business is going to be a really good business now in the decade's time. Um, it's got the highest number of stores per franchisee. It's one of, the, one of the things I really look at is the stores per franchisee because if you've got existing franchisees buying new stores or adding new stores to the business, then, then they're pretty much they're making money and they're happy. It's when you get franchisees' numbers dropping, that's when you've got a problem. And the numbers in Japan are still going up. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a wonderful business run by a wonderful management team. They're just so focused on the customer. Uh, you know, they've got to the stage now where when you order a pizza, they know that, say, um, Alec, when you ring up, say you order, always get a hammer pineapple pizza. Well, when you order up, when you ring up now and start using the app, they start making a hammer pineapple pizza. Now, you might change your mind and say, okay, I'm not going to have a hammer pineapple pizza. But someone else will, so they just keep making it because someone else will order that pizza. But they've just got it so that they can just, um, uh, the smarts are there, so they're just making this process faster and faster and faster. And I don't know whether Don May was listening to Jeff Bezos, but, you know, he's all about the customer. You know, you just got to reduce the friction points for the customer. Um, So they're they're growing. Australia's a mature business, um, but the rest of the world, France, Germany, Japan, they're going to be big, big businesses in the next decade. They've gone from... A thousand stores to three and a half thousand stores in the last decade. I see no reason they won't be at six and a half thousand stores in twelve in another ten years' time. So, worrying about the price of cheese or the labour cost and whether they're going to meet their profit projections for the next six months is just not something I'm worried about. That, that's that's information that won't last. It's um, it's permanent information I'm looking for and what I think they can do in the next 10 years. All right, well, Wayne, we want to say a massive thank you for uh, joining us today. We have almost run out of time. Uh, if people want to find out more about uh, yourself, your investing or gains, uh, where should they be going? Uh, well, go to the website's probably the best, um, www.gainscapital.com.au um, and probably read my fund updates. I sort of put a fair bit of effort into those because I want people, even if you're not a unit holder, I wish people wrote those letters when I was starting out. And so mm-hmm. the idea behind the fund updates is to give you some edu- some information about how I think about markets and invest the investment process and um, and why I own the things that I own and how those business models work. So they're the sort of letters that I wanted to read when I was starting out, so that's why I'm writing them the way I do. It's not because I'm trying to... Um, be smart and get new investors. It's more I want to you know, help them. I, I look at the Nick Sleep letters uh, that, that he wrote for Nomad and I just think they're brilliant and I, I'd like to emulate that in Australia. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we often talk about how underutilized and undervalued investor letters are and we're pretty lucky mm. that we can read them from investors all around the world. Uh, but Wayne, we'll get into these final three questions. And the first one we like to close the interview out with, uh, do you have any books that you consider must read? Um, yes. I mean, I, as you can see behind me, I read a lot. I, I won't recommend Intelligent Investor because I think Intelligent Investor is a very dry book and it's probably something you want to read five, ten years into 
investing. So the, I've got three books here which I would recommend. The first one is um, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits by Phil Fisher. Um, this guy had a, about a 60-year career. He only, he only owned 14 stocks in his entire career. Most of his wow. money was in four, four of them. Um, and he was all about, and Warren Buffett says I'm, I'm 15% Fisher, he was all about buying good quality businesses and just holding them for years and years. That's That book's 70 years old, but it's still fairly accessible. The writing's fairly accessible. But if you want to read about an individual who sort of took that process, um, this book here called Davis Dynasty um, is a biography of Shelby Davis. Um, now, Shelby Davis borrowed $50,000 off his father-in-law after the Second World War, and he turned that into $900 million by the time he passed away in the <laughs> 1990s. And he donated all that $900 million to charity when he died. And all he did was he invested for the long term, never owned a company. He wasn't a founder. He just invested, mostly invested in insurance stocks. He was a, he knew the insurance, he was an in, expert in the insurance industry and he just did that by buying that. And as a bit of trivia, his grandson now sits on the board of Berkshire Hathaway, Chris Davis. Um, the other one that I've really liked is if you might sort of say, well, Shelby Davis did that buying in insurance stocks and, you know, you couldn't do that now. But this book here called 100 Baggers by um, Chris Mayer, um, that just shows you that there is 100 baggers everywhere in the market. And that's, again, it's pa- be patient and, and good things will happen. The other book I'd just briefly mention um, is Richard Wiser Happier because it's got a chapter in there on Nick's sleep and all the letters he wrote. So it's worth it just to buy for that one chapter. But it's a good book. Yeah. Love that. Four great book recommendations. And you've mentioned Nick Sleep a couple of times there. Uh, if people have read the Buffett letters and they're wondering where to go next, uh, I definitely oh, yeah. think he, he is he is next on the list. Um, yeah. But Wayne, the, the second question we like to close the interview out with, uh, forget the company as an investment today, forget what it's trading at, um, just purely on what the company is, what it does and who runs it. What's the best company you've ever come across? Oh, Google. By a mile, <laughs> nice. Google. Well, be a, that won't be displaced in my lifetime, I don't think. Um, you, YouTube and Google Search and Google Maps—it's—it's it's a brilliant business. Yeah, the world has fundamentally changed before that business is uh, buried. Crazy if we see it overturned oh, in no. our lifetime. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> we just have to make sure that we're paying enough attention to the stock markets yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah. get on that company. That would be yeah. wow. Yeah. Final question. If you think back to your younger uh, self investing in Pacific tires for the first time, what advice would you give to your younger self? I'll give you three pieces of advice to make you happier, richer and wiser. (laughs) Um, The first piece of advice is I'd say don't look at the market every day. It would drive you nuts. Um, If you're not transacting on that day, the price of what you own won't matter. And that will just make you take so much anxiety out of your life instead of seeing red and green arrows up and down on the screen. So don't look at the market on a daily basis. The second thing I would say is when you're looking for information, try and find information that's going to last and it's going to add to your knowledge of how the world works. So whether whether that's getting accounting knowledge or whether that's getting knowledge about psychology and how markets behave, um, or whether it's you know, learning how scale works and how business models work, go and find information that's going to last a long time and add to your base of knowledge. Don't go hunting for what I call decaying information. So trying to work out whether Domino's is going to beat their six-month forecast, that information is useless in six months' time. So you want information that just adds to your knowledge base. So that will make you wiser. And then um, 
what will make you happier, uh, or richer, I should say, wealthier, is stop trying to make market forecasts. If you get the business right, you don't have to worry about the market. And the business is you get your returns from the business, not from the market and predicting whether this was the right time to buy it and this was the right time to sell it. So, so stop looking at the market. Make sure the information you're trying to gather is long-lasting and make sure you're right about the business and stop trying to make market forecasts. Love that. Three very actionable pieces of advice to, uh, to close it out there, Wayne. Very much appreciated. And thank you so much for your time uh, this morning. I know that uh, plenty of our audience would have uh, really taken a lot away from that. Uh, you've certainly got a lot of market experience and uh, in a time where we're experiencing volatility, some of us have never experienced a downturn like this before. Those pieces of advice there really do provide a bit of comfort. So uh, we appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. So this too shall pass. <laughs> this too shall <laughs> this pass. This too shall pass. Yeah, <laughs> love that. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Wayne. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.